season we bear the cross can you put those lyrics up again the last one we bear the cross as we wait for the crown we wait for the royal king for jesus and we tell the world of the treasure we found while we're waiting while we're waiting so let's pray and uh, believe god's going to give us the strength to do that tonight father so many crosses to bear we wait for King Jesus to show up, and we will tell the world while we're waiting of what you're doing in our lives and in the world. And so, Lord, I just pray right now, even as we go into a time of meet and greet, I pray that there would be um, a lighter load upon us, that the presence of you, King Jesus, is here, and we would experience that with every hug and with every handshake. And as we listen to what you tell us through Isaiah, that we would experience it even more as we leave people who can bear a cross while we wait for you. We believe what you're doing is good. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Discover Church. Let's take a minute to greet people around you. Shake their hand, give them a hug, tell them you're happy to see them.
Hey, before you find your seat, before you find your seat, everyone scoot up a few rows. Scoot up a few rows. Come on, we got, just scoot, it, nothing bad's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. There's no such thing as a splash zone. We don't preach like real heavy and spit all over you. Just scoot up a few rows. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to Discover Church. We are a family. We want you to experience what it's like to be in like a living room. All right. As you're making your way up, we are continuing in this series on Advent. Oh, it feels so warm already. It feels so good. I'm so happy. And if you're like, I'm an introvert, I'm not happy, you don't have to talk. You don't have to do anything. You just have to sit. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. We're continuing the series, and um, it's the Advent season. It's the weeks leading up to the arrival of Jesus. And uh, tonight, we're going to have Jay Pathak. He's going to speak to us on Isaiah 11. Okay, so we're walking through the passages in Isaiah, and Jay's no stranger. So can you just give Jay a round of applause? We really appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Good evening, everyone. Was that hard? Was that emotional to move up? Was that hard? It was emotional, wasn't it? It was hard. But you, you were obedient. Uh, well, I am so glad to be with you uh, tonight as we continue looking at various passages in the book of Isaiah. If you've not been with us, we're looking uh, in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is writing 700 years in advance of the birth of Christ in incredible detail describing how Jesus would appear and the kind of ministry Jesus would have, which when you think about just what I said there, it's pretty remarkable. 700 years in advance, he's prophetically speaking about what's happening. And we've looked at some of what would be maybe some of the more famous verses already to this point of Isaiah pointing to Jesus. Uh, does anybody remember anything we've talked about? Not everyone at once. Take your time. That's right, like Isaiah 9 that says, <laughs> it says he'll be born of a virgin. Do you remember that? No? Okay. Uh, and, and he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. So Isaiah, 700 years in advance, prophesies what comes to pass. Um, and so the passage you're going to look at tonight is not nearly as well read or as well understood, and yet... I think it's chock full of all kinds of interesting information about who Jesus is and what Isaiah wants to say about who Jesus is. In Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read a decent amount of scripture, and I think it's important for you to get in your mind what's happening as he's communicating this. As Isaiah is prophesying, the Assyrians have now swept over the entire northern kingdom and destroyed everything and killed a whole lot of people and are about to take a whole bunch of people exiled. They've actually knocked down almost all the trees and all the agriculture, is what historians tell us. They've leveled the trees, so now there's, they've burned crops. So there's smoking, burning stumps in the ground of what used to be a flourishing kingdom. Okay, keep that in your mind as Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It starts like this. I think I have a slide for it. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not 
judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will strike the earth. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leper will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed together with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy all on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's really beautiful scripture. Um, it's worth reading more than once this week if you have time to read it. And uh, in order to set up kind of what's happening in this text, uh, let, let me tell you a little bit about me, especially for those of you who don't know me at all. And, and I'm happy to see new faces. I'm glad you're here tonight. Thanks for coming. Um, I was not raised in church at all. No church background whatsoever. Um, so, you know, I, I, all of this made no sense to me. I, I can only remember going to church. The first time I can remember going was in sixth grade for a funeral. And I can remember asking my mom, why is there a naked man hanging on the wall bleeding to death? Uh, it turns out that was Jesus. If you didn't know, you're like, wow, what kind of weird place was that? Uh, it's called the cross. It was, it was, it was a, it was, it was Jesus. So anyway, I have like no framework for anything, right? Um, and I can remember vividly one of the things that began to shift my thinking towards exploring what it would be like to have a life with God or if God even existed happened in uh, high school for me in an honors English class. We read uh, the writings of a guy, actually listened to a series of interviews, read a couple of different books by a guy named Joseph Campbell. Has anyone here read Joseph Campbell? Okay, great. Uh, so, you know, there's two. So for the rest of you, uh, here's who Joseph Campbell is. Joseph Campbell has, a, you know, a vast, he had a vast uh, body of knowledge. Really, really bright guy. Um, he wrote a book called The Power of Myth. Um, and he was a psychologist, a sociologist, an anthropologist. And he kind of blended those different schools of thought to try to think about how do myths appear in culture at large? And what kind of stories do we tell ourselves? And why do we tell ourselves those stories? Uh, I read a book that he wrote called The Hero of a Thousand Faces. Has anybody ever heard this book? Now, now you're starting to figure out who he is? Okay, now I've got three more people on board. Great. There's five of us now. And, and, um, and it's a really interesting book because here's what he basically makes a case for. He says that every hero story and myth story from pretty much any culture around the world follows a predictable pattern. That stories that endure over time have a predictable pattern to them. And they all sort of have the same kind of shape about how a hero appears and what that hero does and what that hero doesn't do and the sort of quest that they go through. And he starts to map out some of these myths and sort of the pattern of these myths. And he says, you know, if you're in Southeast Asia, you're in South America, you're in Central Africa, you're in Antarctica, 
anywhere you go, the stories are almost like strikingly similar. They're almost identical. And he makes an argument that the reason why this happens, and of course he doesn't necessarily know why, but the argument he makes is that something happens psychologically in people through an evolutionary process, that we tell ourselves certain kinds of stories so that we can make sense of the world, and so it's kind of a human experience. Now, this has some problems with it. Um, like, for example, pretty much every culture that we can find where they would write and tell stories tells a story, for example, of a flood and a person who survives a flood and repopulates the earth. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, is that weird to you? No? Okay. It's weird to me. I mean, people are, like, completely separated, never really talk to each other. They tell a similar kind of story. So, like, how do these stories come to being? Well, one thought would be, oh, well, it's because these things happen to all these people, and they sort of tell the same story. But, but maybe it's psychological is what he says. What I'd like to suggest to you tonight is what I've come to believe in studying this and what many different theologians would make a case for uh, all over the world, and that is that God placed these stories in people's hearts. The Scriptures say that God has placed eternity in people's hearts. The scriptures believe that because God made us, he made us in such a way that we grapple with ways to figure out who he is and we reach toward him because we know there's something out there. And these stories are an echo of that kind of imprint that's been put onto us and in us. And these stories continue. And as the great writer C.S. Lewis would make an argument for, all of these stories are echoes of one another, but they're really echoes of one great story. Uh, as though there's a microscope that is sort of like uh, kind of foggy on the edges. You know, it's not quite in focus. And as you sharpen the microscope, it gets tighter to where it's its clearest. And what the writer C.S. Lewis says, which is what I would agree with, is that it gets sharpest on the person of Jesus. Every single person knows that they were meant to be a part of a story larger than their own. You might not talk about it every day. You know, you're taking out the trash and doing the mundane garbage that most of us do every day. But somewhere there's a gnawing in every human heart that there is something happening outside of ourselves and what the scriptures make a case for is that that story is being told in and around the person of Jesus. Now some of those elements of that story, the way the story gets told, are actually found here in Isaiah chapter 11. Um, you know, some of the things that Joseph Campbell notices about a lot of the different things that people talk about when they talk about heroes and the kinds of stories it is to join with a hero or to find your own life as being heroic are found here in Isaiah 11. And it's in discovering how this story plays out that we begin to realize that we're aching to be a part of this story. That in Jesus, this story is fulfilled and can be fulfilled in our lives as we join it. Does this make sense? that you are being beckoned to a greater story. That what it is to know Jesus isn't just to sort of create a nice add-on to your life. You know, it isn't like 
you know, I, I, like I need a diet. Let's do keto. That seems nice. Anyone on doing keto? Doing keto diet? You don't want to admit it publicly? That's fine. You don't have to. <laughs> or I'm, you know, I'm vegan or whatever. You know, and you could just try different things, and any of these are helpful, and who knows, and they all make different arguments. And this is the way cavemen ate, and then other people are like, no, they didn't. You know, whatever. So there's all this stuff that people do, and it's just like an add-on. It's like you can pick a different way, but something different's happening in the story of the scriptures. The case is being made. But there's something unique that's happened in this man, Jesus. And it's so unique that it compels you to join that story. There's some components here that are interesting. Uh, Isaiah 11 starts with a very simple and seemingly innocuous verse. says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, or the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Remember, Isaiah's looking out over all these burned stumps. People are going, wow, this is the end. <laughs> like, where do we go from here? This is the end of a kingdom. We're going to be captured. I mean, what are we going to do now? And Isaiah looks at this and says, no, 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 no. There will be a branch that will come from this stump. He says the stump of Jesse, which is interesting because for those of you that aren't Bible scholars, Jesse is actually the father of David. He doesn't say from the line of David. That's kind of peculiar, right? You'd think he would refer to David. David's more prominent in the story of the scriptures. But it's as though what Isaiah is saying is that this person will come from utter obscurity. They'll have the bloodlines of this kingdom, but they'll be completely obscure. When all seems lost and everything's broken, they will suddenly appear like a shoot out of what is broken and dead. Um, where, where do we find Luke Skywalker when he's introduced to the story? Where is he? Tatooine. Tatooine, well done. Some of you are like, I, it's, I don't know, it's the one with the weird moons. Yeah, it's, it's Tatooine. Tatooine is the middle of nowhere. And as we begin to notice his character develop, we figure out something remarkable about this boy who just drives pods around in the desert. There's royal blood in his veins. He's been hidden there for a purpose. That when all is lost, here arises Luke Skywalker. Uh, what is the work of uh, Mr. Anderson in the Matrix. He's like a boring loser, right? He has this stupid job who like pretends to be something interesting on the side and yet what we discover is he is Neo. The one, now if, I'm, if you haven't seen these movies, that's your fault. I, I, I feel like these are old, okay? Like, I'm not, I'm not blowing up stuff from the last couple years here. If you, if you have not made the time to see Star Wars, that's on you. That's on you. You got you to gotta work that out, okay? If you've not seen The Matrix, you've done bad, okay? You should have tried harder. It, it, no spoiler alerts here. Be better, okay? Just be better. <laughs> and, and we can go backward, not just to present-day myths. We can go all the way through. I'm serious. We can go all the way through and look in almost any culture and watch this myth story develop. King Arthur, 
appears as a young boy from nowhere when all the great warriors, all the great powerful people of wealth and prestige and all from the right families go to pull the sword from the stone and none of them can do it. But who does? A boy who seems obscure. He's from nowhere. He is nothing. And it's him. He's the one who rises from the ashes to change everything. We keep telling the same story because we know somehow that it's true because God placed it in us. The story of Jesus is no different. King Herod is in charge. He has all the pomp and the circumstance and the power and the money and the wealth, and yet he is a fraud. He is not of the right line. He is not of the right person. And yet, a boy is born in a manger to a carpenter during a census. The people who were supposed to be looking for his birth weren't even looking. See, they had bought stories from their culture, not the stories of what the scriptures taught them. They were looking for a certain kind of king, a military king, a powerful king that would come and do all kinds of interesting religious things. But Isaiah and many like him had been telling them for hundreds of years exactly where to look and what he would be like. And there he is, born in a manger. And they miss it. And that continues, by the way. It keeps going. I mean, when he appears, Jesus of Nazareth, he starts walking around doing the things that he was doing. They still can't get it. They still don't see it. They're completely unaware of what's happening. Uh, he doesn't talk the right way. He's not from the right place. When you read the New Testament, people will say things like, well, you know, who's this guy from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That was like a, a phrase they would say. That was kind of a common term, and they don't, he doesn't talk the right way. Not, neither he nor any of the people he's with. They all have kind of that West Virginia twang to their voice. Come on. If you're from West Virginia, I'm sure you're great. I, I'm just saying people hear it, right? You like notice it. You're like, I hear that. What is that? Where are you from? What is that? I mean, by the way, if you didn't know that, that's what it was like to be from Galilee. You sounded different. People could pick it out. You find it all through the New Testament. People listen to Jesus and his friends talk, and they go, where are you from? You don't sound like you're from New York. You didn't go to an Ivy League school. You don't sound British. I mean, I love it when I watch the movies that they portray Jesus, and he's like got a little British kind of thing going on. It's like, no, no, no. If you want to get it right, if it was set for Americans, he should sound like he's from the backwater in West Virginia or Alabama or somewhere like that. That's what he sounded like. That's what all the guys sounded like that he walked around with. Because Isaiah said the way it would go. Every story that tells us the story of a hero tells us this is the way it goes. That God chooses and works with the obscure to do mighty, wonderful, magnificent things. Even from the stump of Jesse, this man will arise. This should be such a great encouragement to you. This should be such a great encouragement to us. Do you ever feel like you don't quite have enough 
You didn't quite get the right grade. You didn't go exactly the right school. You didn't come from exactly the right family. That it seems like whoever does anything interesting in the world, it's like, it's like the, the cards were stacked before they even started. And so they're the people that get to do all the interesting things. And who are you? And who are you? Who are you? Right now you're like, how does he know? Yeah, it's because we all have this. We, we, you know. And yet everything we read in the scripture says that God chooses unlikely people from unlikely circumstances for a time such as this. That he does it with Jesus and he does it to this day. He does it all through the New Testament. He's done it all through church history. That what it means to follow God means that you are brought into that bloodline. That's what the gospel writers want to tell you. See, when you read the gospels, they start with genealogies. They try to tell you that this Jesus who came from Mary, uh, that, that he actually has royal blood in his veins. I mean, he's a carpenter's son, but he's actually, he's, he's royalty. Here's what's amazing that the scriptures teach. That when you come into life with God, you become a son or a daughter of the king. That what it means to surrender the whole of your life to Jesus is quite literally you're adopted into a family and you get the inheritance of that family. Did you know that's true? That as you've said yes to Jesus, no matter how obscure you might be, the blood that pumps in your veins is the blood of kings and queens because you stand in the royal line, the lineage of God himself. That you need not be afraid. That you need not shirk back. That he's called you and equipped you for a time such as this. Well, of course, it isn't just talk about his arrival. If you continue to read, uh, and by the way, we could look at all kinds of interesting things. Well, I'll say one more thing about that. Isaiah 53, he speaks of Jesus. And he uses the same language. He says, like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I mean, it's as though Isaiah is saying, Jesus wasn't that much to look at. Like in a room full of people, you're not going to be like, who's that? Look at his hair. His piercing eyes. His creamy skin. Who is that man? No, he's like, he's just going to look like another guy. He doesn't stick out. There's nothing amazing about him. He's normal, and the only thing that makes him different is what happens next. That he's equipped differently because of what God does with him. Verse 2, we read it a moment ago. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. Isaiah says, He'll look normal, he'll act normal, he'll be from a normal place, really an obscure place, in the midst of where everything is broken, and yet he'll have power upon him. The presence of God will rest on him for him to do everything that he's supposed to do. That's what will mark this man. Not just his own wisdom, but wisdom that comes from God. And again, what a great encouragement if we see Jesus as our Messiah, our model in life. Do any of you have moments where you realize... Who I need to be and who I am right now are not the same thing. There's a gap. Like, you're, you're like, how many times a day do you have a moment where you're with somebody and you're like, I find you annoying. 
And I know I should be kind to you. And yet, it's all I can do to just not speak. No, nobody? It's just me. Okay. That there's a gap that's created between being gracious and thoughtful and kind and what you actually experience. I, I think that's part of what it is to be a human. Uh, it gets worse, by the way, if it's your spouse or your kids. <laughs> Only married people laugh at that joke. Or, you know, right? Someone you feel like your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you're supposed to be connected and you're like, oh my, I don't have this. Here's what's amazing. It, this, is, this is truly amazing. That the teaching of the scripture is not that you get stronger, but that you become more dependent on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is to have a life of God. And that's what Jesus modeled. He didn't rely on his own divinity. The Spirit of God was upon him. He's baptized and the Spirit descends upon him. Uh, the scriptures teach us really plainly, and I don't have adequate time to talk about this, but that, that, that Jesus healed the sick not by his own power, but by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a great comfort to us because you are not bright enough. You're not cool enough. You're not powerful enough. But what growth is, is learning to become increasingly more dependent on God. This fits every great myth we love. Use the force, Luke. Right? I mean, he's straining, he's striving, he's doing the best he can. And what happens? You know, he takes the thing off and he closes his eyes. And I mean, I'm, I wouldn't recommend closing, you know. I'm just, I'm just saying it's an illustration of how he's learning to depend more on a presence beyond himself. This is, what the, this is what the scriptures teach us front to back. Is that what it is to come into life of God is not that you strain harder, but you learn to depend more. You're more aware of God. You look to God more quickly. You rely on him more effectively. And that he does things that you have no business doing. And you will know more than anyone else that he's the one doing it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the crazy experience of putting your hand on someone who is sick and praying for them. And they actually get better. And somebody wants to lick you and go, wow, you're amazing. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't know what just happened. That's crazy. I've had that happen dozens of times in my life. Dozens of times I'll talk about what life with Jesus is like with someone. They go, oh, my goodness, you're so eloquent. That was so helpful for me. And I'm like, I know me. <laughs> you don't know me. I know me. That's the grace of God. That's the presence of God. That's God coming after you. That can be your life. That's my life. That's so encouraging, isn't it? That this is the kind of Savior we worship. What a beautiful Savior. And then, of course, it goes on. And it talks about what his reign will be like. What kind of a leader is he? Verse 3, it says, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. And I'm not going to go on and keep talking what he talks about, but does anybody see a need in our current culture for someone that actually leads with integrity? Am I, am I preaching myself here? Anybody sit, look around and you go, we need somebody that leads from their spine who actually is like centered in something that's true and compassionate and real 
willing to do what's right for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the marginalized, not increasing oppression, not heaping pain into our world, but actually standing on behalf of those who are on the margins and the most broken. But they don't just acquiesce to the the fears and the yelping and the yelling of the watching world. They have a center, and they're prepared to live from that center for the sake of those that can't speak for themselves. You think we need that? That's, That's exactly what Jesus is. And let me tell you what happens if you live that way. Because if you're really honest, you probably want to see that in the mirror, don't you? Don't you want to become the kind of person where you go, I don't just worry if I'm offending anybody or if you fear the Lord more than you fear how people think. And Isaiah says that's what Jesus is going to be like. That's what he's like. And let me tell you what happens if you live that way. The religious powers of the world and the political powers of the world, they get together and they kill you. (laughs) That's what happens. You're like, oh, that was not what I thought you were going to say. That's what happens. Isaiah 11 runs to Isaiah 53 where it says, for he is bruised for our transgressions. He's pierced. He's killed. But listen, the argument, the argument of the scriptures is that it's worth it. That if you want to live a life that's worthwhile, it means you go against the grain. If you push your hand against the grain on a board, you will get splinters. You will suffer. But that the world is broken in a way that Jesus came to take all that on. And that those that follow him are prepared to suffer accordingly as well. They don't just live with the fear of man. They live with the fear of God in their life. I mean, isn't this what you want? Doesn't this just make you go, what a beautiful Savior? What kind of God is this? Uh, Do you want me to map out all the storylines again where people suffer, where they have to be? beat up by the evil of the world they have to resist the empire they have to fight against the agents whatever right we can go through all the stories and in order to be a hero that's worth anything you suffer and that's true for you if you thought coming to know Jesus meant that somehow your suffering would be alleviated oh I'm so sorry somebody lied to you suffering is in the world and the worst of it is this to follow Jesus it means likely it only increases. It doesn't decrease. Because you push against the tide of the world. But you have the peace in the presence of God. So in the midst of the storm, you can be strengthened from the inside out. Of course, this is not the end of this incredible text. Uh, The Messiah then somehow brings us back to Eden. It's an incredible incredible way this text ends. Um, in order to make sense of this, I have a slide for you. You've, you've all seen the mountains before, but I have a slide of mountains. Uh, we live near the mountains, so I hope you see these from time to time. But when you look at these mountains, from the vantage point of this picture, or many times when you look at the mountains, they, they look like they're all pretty close together, don't they? But if any of you have driven to Grand Junction, Uh, you know that these mountain peaks or any mountain peaks are actually pretty far apart from one another, right? Have you ever done this where you're driving the mountains all of a sudden you're like, there's more mountains. And you keep driving, you're like, there's still more mountains. Uh, And then if you've ever had the horrible experience of trying to drive to like Telluride, anybody driven to Telluride? That's like forever. Like how is that still in our state? 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm from Ohio. I could drive to upstate New York in eight hours. Okay, like all the way to the coast from Ohio. Some of you are like, what's the map? I can't see the map. That's a, it's a long way. In the same amount of time, you barely get to the corner of Colorado, right? Because these mountains that all look like they're on top of each other are actually really spread out. In the same way, and this is an interesting theological point for three people. So those of you who like theological thinking, you're going to love this next part. Uh, the rest of you, I'll tell you when to come back, and I'm going to wrap it up. Okay, here's, here's an interesting theological point. Prophets in the Old Testament and often in the New Testament, when they're proclaiming things, they speak as though these things are on top of each other when there's actually big gaps in between. See, Isaiah is speaking to the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, but he's also speaking, as we've been learning, about the coming Messiah, Jesus. The gap between those two is 700 years. <laughs> That's a long way. But he just talks about him seamlessly. Like, well, and then this is what he's going to be like. It's like, what are you doing right now? And, and most theologians argue that they don't even know what they're doing. They're just rattling things off. Because they're seeing them as though they're next to each other. And this last part is yet another peak that's even further that we still don't even know when that comes. Where, remember the whole part I read it a moment ago, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. That somehow Jesus will return and make even the creation new again. It will all work together the right way. I mean, Revelation picks up many of these stories and talks about how there will be no more tears, no more death, and no more crying. And that somehow that last peak is brought together by Jesus as well. And my favorite one of that is that the kid sticks his hand in the viper nest. It's like, ooh, that one's terrifying. But that somehow you won't, you won't have to be even be afraid of that. I don't even, I mean, in the new creation, I don't know what happens, for example, to like mosquitoes. Do they, do, are they evaporated? They're a part of the fall, you think so? That's your, or we just donate our blood willingly. <laughs> Like it doesn't hurt somehow. I don't know. I don't know what happens. But, but the point is this. Isaiah makes a case that this Savior who suffers and is risen again will come back and set it all right. That's an indeterminate amount of time. Now what's powerful about that is that again, in our hearts, I think everybody knows this is true. Everybody knows that even the best that we experience isn't quite right. Something's amiss. Everybody knows it. I don't know the last time you've been to a funeral. Um, because my job, I probably go to more funerals than you. I'm usually, you know, helping lead them and speak and do different things. Um, so, you know, I don't know. La when, when's the last time you went to one? Think about it for a moment. It's one of the strangest things to go to. And it doesn't matter what the funeral is. Even if somebody's been sick for like a decade and everyone's kind of like, oh man, they've been so much pain and they died, they're at peace. Even then, there's this strange thing that hangs in the air where everybody knows this isn't right. It feels funny, doesn't it? It's like uh, y y there's a gnawing in us. And, and, and if we weren't spiritual beings, we didn't have a story in our hearts, dying should be the most natural thing that happens. Everything dies. But the reason it doesn't feel right is because it isn't right. People were not meant to die. 
People are not meant to be sick. We were not meant to be at war or in pain in the ways that we are. The reason it hits us funny is because there's something in us that longs for more. Because we know there's supposed to be somewhere, someday, somehow, that everything's made new again. And there's no pain, and there's no death, and there's no fear. And that gives us hope. The pangs of death help us go, wow, this is what's promised in Jesus. That is the end of this story. That must be true. You have a hunger for something beyond yourself. We call that hope. Do not despair. What's so inspiring about this text, what's so inspiring about Jesus is 700 years in advance. Isaiah says these things that come to pass in Jesus such that then we can take the last part and say, just as the first parts have come to pass, so must this last part. It gives us hope in the midst of all our pain, no matter what happens. We know that one day this same Messiah will come and make things new again. And all the bustle of what you're doing as you lead up to Christmas, nine days. Would you pause from time to time and just say, what kind of Savior is this? What kind of God is this? What kind of God becomes a human? Think about how nuts that is. And not just any human, but a human from the middle of nowhere with nothing interesting about him. He doesn't pick like Brad Pitt's body. You know, he's like, he's just nobody from nowhere. But the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And not only is he a human, but he's a servant. You know, he's a carpenter's son. He spends his days homeless, wandering around, talking to people that don't want anything to do with him. And then he's willing to die for us to suffer for us and not just die but die this humiliating embarrassing awful death hung spread out naked nails driven in his hands and his feet and a spear driven to the side what kind of god is this i mean you, you can only adore him you can only be in awe of who he is and what he's done and yet at the same time, we recognize this is the story that we're all trying to join. We watch the dumb movies we watch and tell the myths, the William Wallaces and the Neos and the <laughs> Luke Skywalkers all point and say there's a story bigger than this one. I just pray that you don't buy the stories of this age that tell you you got to be wealthier, you got to have more money, you got to be more powerful, you got to be more interesting. I hope you can turn those loose. And in this season, you look at Jesus and say, oh, I just come to adore you, the one who gave everything for me. Because his name is Jesus. That's the story we see. Why don't we stand together? Preston's going to come and help me as we respond. Yeah, you can come. Yeah, don't be, don't be nervous.
We want to do some things to respond uh, to God because we don't want to just talk about him as though he's in the other room. I believe that uh, God, by his spirit, is here among us now. And so we want to do some things to respond. So, Preston, Preston, what are the, what's some of the things you want to do? One of the things we start doing is...